Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is an episode that we have been waiting for for a long time. It is. It's our final episode on Lakstala Saga. Well, except for the Judgments episode. Shh, don't ruin the moment. Also, are you sure this is the last episode? I know we don't have a lot of chapters left, but we've got a fair number of pages left in this. Uh, yeah, but we'll get it done. Have a little faith in our not? ability to limp this thing across the finish line. All right. Well, that's really nice. Uh, did we uh, prepare anything for the occasion? A little chilled champagne, perhaps? I'm not that confident. Uh, okay. I'd actually hope that we'd be able to record this episode in the downtime when you came up to New England, but uh, that didn't end up happening. Uh, well, I mean, there were, wasn't really any downtime at all. That was exactly the problem, yes. Yes, uh, it was. <laughs> but we did have an entire day at our alma mater, Yukon, and we got to talk about the world of the sagas pretty much the whole time. So yeah. I'm counting it as a win. Yeah, we, we uh, recorded one of the three sessions, uh, and it is up. Uh, you're probably in your boredom waiting for another Saga Thing episode. You've already listened to it. Uh, it was a Saga brief on slavery in the Viking world. But it's already up. Good job. Oh, I'm very speedy, and that was like two, three weeks ago. So, <laughs> you know, more of a tortoise than a hare. Anyway, uh, the delay <laughs> gave us some time to get a bit done on some other fronts. Uh, you've been working mm-hmm. on completing a genealogical chart for this saga. Uh, how's that coming along? Oh, I finished it last week. I, I, I know we you. were getting ready for the judgments. So I was like, I'm going to reread the whole thing because I forgot to do the body count <laughs> and a lot of the other things we do for judgments while I was actually reading it. So I got all that stuff taken care of. And I was like, I should finish the genealogy while I'm going. So I did that. Um, I shared it on our social media actually just uh, today. Nice. And, um, you know, I think two or three people might look at it and say, look at that. There's a lot of names there. Well, add me to the two or three. Make it three or four now. Okay. There uh, you go. Excellent. Well, well, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. That's great. Thank you. Uh, well, I've been working on some other stuff, including a saga brief that I'm hoping to have ready sometime in June uh, oh, cool. and a conference paper that I'll be bringing to Reykjavik next week. Gallivanting off to Iceland again, huh? Yeah, only for a few days this time. Uh, but I am hoping to see a couple of friends of the podcast while I'm there. Excellent, excellent. That's very, very nice for you. I'm jealous. I know we had talked about maybe me joining you over there. That mm-hmm. didn't work out either. Uh, but I'm going to ask you to have an Einstock for me. Will do. Uh, I'm also going to have one or two for myself. Uh, and hey, if, if anyone who's listening wants me to have a very good beer in honor of them while I'm in Reykjavik, let me know on the unofficial official Discord page. I'm happy to oblige. There you go. Get that plug in early. Just That's out right. of curiosity, um, yep. what date are you going to be there in case this episode is up and someone oh, can suddenly um, find you quickly? I'm there. I'm arriving on the 10th, leaving on the 14th. Oh, uh, so this episode will be up in time for people to there stalk you, you and find you. If you're in Reykjavik uh, and you got nothing to do and you want to watch me drink a beer or even perhaps drink <laughs> one with me, just there let me go. know. I'll be around. So if you are in Reykjavik, uh, you know, shoot shoot us a, a, a tweet or a Discord or a whatever, <laughs> and uh, and I'll try to get you in touch with John somehow. And uh, and for the record, I also do drink coffee. So if you're not a, if you're not an alcohol drinker, I don't yeah, want to suggest uh, that that precludes you from seeing me. That's right. And there's that great Pakistani place uh, you might be having lunch there sometimes. Ooh, so. yes, that's a very good place. Yes. Uh, yeah. If I could remember the name of the restaurant, I would give it a plug on here, but I don't, so I won't. Oh, I know the name of it. It's um, it's Shalimar on uh, Auster Street. <laughs> Excellent. Good job. Uh, yeah, it's a great place. Uh, so if you're listening to these as, they, as they've been released, uh, you'll have had a bit of a breather from Lockstala Saga yeah. over the last month. So you probably need a brief recap of the recent action oh. as we cover what happened. 
last time on Saga Thing. Thorlick and Butley Butlerson, the sons of Gudrun Oswald's daughter, have taken a circuitous revenge for the slaying of their father. But when their co-conspirator Thorgils tries to cash his claim on the hand of Gudrun as the price of his hired sword, she reminds him of the wording of her promise to him. A promise that includes a sneaky loophole, big enough for her to slip through and escape her obligation to Thorgils. Thorgils goes away mad, but he does go away, and his story is soon resolved, when he is assassinated at the following year's all thing. His place in the saga is taken by the dashing Thor Kettle Eilfsson, the man Gudrun's been waiting to make the oboe in her husband quartet. Thor Kettle is thrilled to make the cut, but soon must dance to a different tune on their wedding day. When Thor Kettle discovers an outlaw from his personal most wanted list among his wife's wedding guests, he tries to get his man, only to find that Gudrun has got his number. She orders her own men to cut down anyone who starts trouble, and that includes the blushing groom. Fortunately, Thorkettle is a man who knows the value and the cost of having Gudrun as a wife. He backs away, even agrees to give the outlaw a ship to help him escape from Iceland. Meanwhile, the Botlersons seek further revenge against their father's killers, the Olafsons. But who's that lurking around the corner? Why, it's Botley's father-in-law, Snorri Gothi. Gothi? Who catches them in mid-plot. With little choice, they agree to let Snorri try his hand at negotiating a non-violent solution. Snorri is able to low-key threaten the Olafsons into making a handsome compensation payment in public, and the two sides are finally reconciled after 16 years of enmity. So we're all done here. Time to Amscray. Ah, but don't put your leaving shoes on just yet. This saga isn't quite over. But with all the feuds and the dust settled, what is left for our survivors? And what about the prophecy still hanging over Gudrun's head that predicts a sticky end for her fourth husband, Thorkettle? Find out as we conclude Laxdala Saga, chapter 72 to 78. So, uh, yeah, we got a few loose ends to wrap up. Yeah, we do. Uh, in fact, this episode is, I think, mostly about wrapping up loose ends. Yeah. Uh, not entirely, though. We do have to finish out the life story of Gudrun Oswald's daughter, mm-hmm. who's emerged as the central figure of the second half of this saga. Yes, and Guthrun is no longer young, but she's still got an iconic moment or two up her well-embroidered sleeve. I'm ready when you are. Let her rip. Part 50. A long trip off a regular-sized pier. Part 50? Yeah, I know. Long pier you can walk right off of. (laughs) How do we get to 50? uh, the end of the last episode returned our narrative to Gudrun's sons, Butley and Thorlick Butlison. Yes, uh, but mostly Butley. Yeah, okay, yes. Uh, so we're picking up the story a year after the final compensation settlement that the Butlisons made with their father's killers. Uh, Butley is now married to Snorri Gothi's daughter, Thordis. And this section of the saga opens with the news that Thordis has given birth to a daughter named Herdis. Oh, Congratulations. Now, Herdis is going to be fostered with Grandma Gudrun, who is much fonder of her grandchild than she's ever seemed to be of her sons. She's loosening up a bit with age. I mean, she almost executed her husband at their wedding, so... And look, loosening up is a process. <laughs> uh, she's prescribing to the Kue method. Every okay. day in every way, Gudrun is getting better and better. Gotcha. Uh, but while Gudrun is discovering the joys of grandparenting, Butley is getting antsy. Well, I mean, he's an adult now, and he's never really gone anywhere or done much of anything, you know, so... Well, he did kill Helgi Harbinson. I mean, he had a whole crew of guys to help him with that, but yeah. Oh, 
oh, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, so Boltley's afraid that he's going to be thought of as a rube if he doesn't really expand his horizons. Everyone mm-hmm. in his family's past has always gone overseas and done amazing things and gained the honor of a king. So he wants to do the same kind of thing, but Snorri Gothi doesn't want him to travel. In mm-hmm. fact, he offers to help him gain a Gothorth, the chieftaincy, and to help him rise in importance in the region. But Boltley says, no, for a long time now I've wanted to travel south A man is considered to grow ignorant if he has explored nothing beyond the shores of Iceland. South. South? Yeah, that's what he said. He wants to go south. Okay, so this isn't just another trip to Norway he's planning. Uh, South would mean visiting the continent. Yes, but all railroads lead to Norway. So that's Mm -hmm. got to be a stop on the way. The point is that Boatley wants to expand his mind and expand his reputation. And he doesn't see a way to do that without leaving the island and rubbing elbows with the other peoples of Europe. That's all very high-minded, but Butley doesn't actually have the ready wealth to fund a trip like he's envisioning. Well, if he only had a wealthy benefactor who might be willing to put up the cash, maybe a a father-in-law, perhaps. Butley says, looking meaningfully at Snorri. Yeah. Yeah. And Story sighs and opens his purse and says, All right, I can provide the wealth for your trip. How much do you need? I'm sorry. So uh, Snorri is Jack Palance now? Yeah. Yeah. Because he's older, you see. I see. And I'm glad uh, you picked well, up that it was a Jack Palance. Uh, that was, that was not a bad Jack Palance. Oh, thank uh, you, man. No, it's uh, one of few that I can do. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Now, Botley at this point, with absolutely no sense of irony whatsoever, says, I will take a great deal of wealth, as I want charity from no man, either here or abroad. It's great. I will take a great deal of wealth. Thank you, father-in-law. Hell of a thing to say while literally getting a handout from your wealthy oh in-law, isn't it? Oh, my God. It's, he's a, you know what? He's a, he's a rich man's kid. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, no, Butley's a master of the first rule of being an aristocrat, right? It's only charity if it's for the poors. Mm-hmm. What he's getting, you see, is an investment. Which he will not pay back. Yeah, investment. (laughs) I have to say, it does seem like Snorri's landed himself with a fairly difficult son-in-law. Boldly only married his daughter a year or so ago, Mm -hmm. and he's already had to head off a revenge plot, then agreed to negotiate a compensation payment for a killing that was settled over a decade ago, and now he's having to unbelt and open up the chest to pay for this kid to go on a, a gap year tour of Europe? Ask not what Botley can do for you. Ask what you can do for Botley. Era. Um, yeah, I don't remember anyone asking. Nevertheless. <laughs> now, with his uh, newfound silver jingling in his jeans, Botley buys the other half of the ship owned by his brother Thorlick. They load the ship with all the goods and wealth Botley has, quote-unquote, borrowed from Snorri, and they set sail. Yeah. Now, at this point, we might ask whether these two are good sailors, you know? Mm-hmm. Thorlick has been on one trip to Norway, and Boatley, as he said, has never been off the island. So how are now they at sailing? Yeah, it's, it's a good point. Uh, and it's one the brothers should have thought about before setting sail. <laughs> as it happens, they have little luck and not a lot of skill, and they end up sailing around for quite a long time looking for good winds. Until they um, land they- in Greenland. No, no. They the do manage world. to avoid any disasters like going the wrong way. Okay. Uh, but it's autumn by the time they reach Nidaros in Norway. And Dang. it turns out the king isn't there. He's off in the east in Vik with his men. He's uh, planning on staying there for the winter. Okay. So there's a throwaway line there that's actually pretty interesting. 
the king has gathered provisions for a winter in Vik. And the logistics mm-hmm. of this kind of thing are daunting. Trying to plan out the oh, needs yeah. of a large number of people for a long amount of time. It's difficult. Well, right. It's not just about surviving, right? A mm-hmm. king needs to maintain a reputation for generosity and high living while he's at it. True. And we're not talking about four months of dry beans and rye flour, right? This is why there are people who are valued in this culture for their skills in planning and arranging things like winter quarters. The king would need to decide where he was going to be for the winter probably early in the year, if not Mm -hmm. the winter of the year prior. And it would be difficult to change your mind about that later. Right. Which, by the way, the inference here is that it's slightly embarrassing to have been ignorant of where the king was going to be, right? That information has been available probably for most of the year. Mm-hmm. The Baltlesons clearly aren't up on the local news if they didn't even know where plans are being made for the king's winter lodgings. Well, I mean, they've been in Iceland and then right. wandering around the ocean. So, yep. right? <laughs> uh, so that was the point that Boltley was making, though. Men in Iceland aren't in the loop of Norwegian celebrity gossip. And they might be thought of as ignorant because of that. Mm-hmm. Right, and Thorlick wants to get over to Vik post-haste and uh, pay respects to the king... But Botley objects. I'm not excited at the idea of tramping all over the place in autumn. It seems like servile bondage to me. Mm. I want to spend the winter here in town. I'm told the king will come here in the spring, and if he doesn't, I won't stop you from dragging us off to meet him then. It's really hard to know what to do with Botley in this moment, right? I mean, is he a spoiled brat or a self-assured scion of Iceland? Are, Are those my only choices? Well, I'm not giving you choices. It was a rhetorical question. Oh, can I answer it anyway? I mean, you know what rhetorical means, right? I do, yes. Okay. <laughs> but I, I'm interpreting your question as a heuristic instead. Oh, I think well. Butley is, I think Butley's a self-willed brat and an example of Icelandic manly self-determination. I see. Uh, in this case, the saga's viewpoint seems to be that he's showing an admirable independence of thought and refusing to chase all over the landscape looking for a Norwegian boot to lick. <laughs> I, I was nodding along there into the, that last part. It might be a little <laughs> bit strong. But Thorlik is looking like a more typical man of Olaf's court, right? He clearly understands that being close to the king physically is kind of important to safeguarding one's reputation. I mean, mm-hmm. Kings of Norway are notorious for being susceptible to rumor or to the influences of jealous courtiers. But Boltley is not really playing those kind of reindeer games. He doesn't want anything no. to do with it. No, no reindeer games. Uh, and so they hunker down in Nidoros for the winter, and they spend the time in drinking and building reputations as ambitious and generous men. Mm-hmm. And the king never does pass through Nidoros, oh, so wow. the Botlesons eventually track him down in Salzburg, uh, where Thorlick presents baby brother Botley to the king. Yeah, now we can skip over a little bit here because nothing nothing mm-hmm. really significant happens in Norway, except that Botley continues to impress everyone with his manly bearing. Manly is strong. Well, he'd be, hey, he's in his late teens at this point, uh, mm-hmm. his post-adolescent bearing at the very least. But there remember, we've we've had a description of him in the past, and he he definitely is larger than the average man. He's one of those typical mm-hmm. saga heroes, so mm-hmm. it's not yep. surprising that the king is impressed with him. Right. In fact, John, yeah. doesn't the king say something to the effect of, uh, Thorlick, is this your brother? Because he's much more impressive than you. <laughs> I mean, that every, I do wonder sometimes about Thorlick's sort of self-possession here because everybody seems to react that way to seeing yeah, Baltley. Like, oh, well, this is a man right here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even Gudrun, right? We're told that he's Gudrun's favorite, too. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's their mom. <laughs> uh, but we can, we can jump ahead to the following spring uh, when Thorlick assumes they'll be loading the ship and heading home. But Baltley says, 
I won't go with you, and I won't stay here in Norway either. To tell you the truth, when I left Iceland, I had intended that no one would hear I'd just settled down next door. You take the ship home. Yeah. So it, it turns out that Botley wasn't kidding when he told Snorri he wanted to get out and see the world a bit. Or when he told uh, Thordis to hold down the uh, the fort for three years or something like that. Right. Just wait for me, I'll be back. Mm-hmm. Oh, will you, though? Uh, yeah, so so he's he's not going <laughs> home to Iceland. Mom's going to watch her kid. Yeah, that's right. So he's not going home to Iceland, is he? No, he isn't. And he's not staying in Norway, either. Nope. He's moving on to Denmark. Well, Denmark's nice. Yeah, but he only stays there for a year as well. We can follow his progress, but, uh, you know, we don't really need to. Uh, the arc that he's traveling <laughs> on, uh, we've seen it before. If, if you, f- you know, you go from Norway to Denmark, you know where you're headed next, right? Mm-hmm. He's on his way to visit the southern part of the continent. Right. And the only real question is whether he's on his way to Rome or to Constantinople. Why not both? Uh, well, in this case, he's going to Constantinople. Okay. Well, that's right. And he does get there and he joins the Varangian Guard which we've seen men do in the sagas before. It's a good way to make money and maybe earn a reputation in the bargain, and saga heroes generally do this at the end of sagas, right? Boltley spends several years in and around Constantinople. We're told that he fights in a number of battles, but we're not told any of the details. In fact, this whole sequence that we're describing to you is probably taking longer than if you were to read the few pages (laughs) that cover it. That's correct. Uh, So we haven't talked about the Vrangian Guard in quite a while. It's a... It's a quasi-mercenary military force that serves the emperors of Byzantium down in Constantinople. Yeah, they are essentially a kind of mass bodyguard for the emperor. Uh, They get started in, what, the late 9th, early 10th century? Yeah, formally in the 10th, under uh, Bezalel II in about 988. Mm -hmm. But they're around for a while before that. We really really should do a bit of a saga. Wait, 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 no, no, no. Don't say that. No, we really should do a saga brief on the Vranian Guard. First of all, while we were just talking about the Varangian Guard, I was thinking to myself, we should reference the the saga brief that we did on the, the Varangian Guard. Which we haven't done. But we've talked about doing one before. So Yes, we have. <laughs> that's why I don't I don't like you bringing these things up. Yeah, but it's, it keeps us busy. It keeps us out of trouble. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, now you get to start researching for that. So start researching. I have actually, I actually do have a file somewhere because, yeah, this isn't the first I have time some we notes. discussed this. <laughs> yeah, I have some notes on it as well. <laughs> all right. Well, you wanted to finish the saga tonight, right? So we got to leave right, the Varangians. Right. Yep. Continue. Okay. So the guard maintains a policy of loyalty to the office of emperor, and they become a highly trusted force. Uh, So Mm -hmm. there's your saga brief. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Now, we have, like I said, seen this before, but the saga's author wants us to see it with new eyes, apparently. That's very poetical and almost completely meaningless. Okay. Well, we're told at this point, we know of no reports of northerners having entered the service of the Byzantine emperor before Bodley Bolison. Okay, so that's almost certainly not true. I mean, can't be, right? Uh, yeah, no. The Guard are well-established by the time Butley gets down there. We we figured out in the last episode that Thorlick's first trip to Norway took place between 1022 to 1024. Well, we've just seen Butley pass another three years. One in Iceland, one in Norway, one in Denmark. Even assuming he didn't stop anywhere else, it's at least 1027 by now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a problem with that chronology, but it's a problem in the saga, not with us. Yeah, that's the ticket. Now, we'll, we will deal, actually deal with that soon. Uh, but for now, the point is that the emperor, uh, Basil II, died in 1025, 
about 37 years after the Guard were formalized, and we're at least a couple of years past that, into the reigns of Constantine VIII or Romanos III in the late 1020s. Well, you researched this in advance, didn't you? I mean, I checked, but the 11th century is actually the one and only century of Byzantine history that I'm competent at. Okay. Uh, the For reasons that I'll explain when we get to the Frankian Guard episode. <laughs> uh, if, if, the we, po- if we get there. Da, 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 when, when, come on, have faith. Uh, the point is that there's no way Botley is arriving at the advent of Varangian activity. No way. Uh, and don't take my word for it. Uh, Margaret Arendt also makes a point of saying that this is chronologically incoherent. Okay. Well, there is still a little bit of wiggle room there. The author mm. does say we know of no reports. Okay, so what you're saying is we can't definitively approve the author's knowledge or ignorance. I assume the <laughs> Sad author. Sad true. Yeah, I, th- I assume the author is uh, just some guy or perhaps a, a, a lady in a, a monastery somewhere. Mm-hmm. They don't know mm-hmm. Varangian Guard from Varangian Guard, you know? Right. Right, they haven't they haven't read the Alexia. They have no idea what's going yeah, on now. Yeah, but uh, let's uh, let's leave Boltley to his overseas adventure for a bit. Uh, let's jump back to Iceland, shall we, John? Mm-hmm. All right, let's do it. Part fifty one, Norwegian wood. <laughs> so, is that the the song or the novel? Well, I mean, that's the beauty of the reference. It's whatever oh. you want it to be. Okay. Also, I have only the vaguest memories of the song existing, so that probably answers your question. Okay. Uh, it's by the birds, isn't it? Uh, it's by the Beatles. Yeah, that explains it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I once uh, I once lost a bet in college because I couldn't name two Beatles songs. Oh, I mean, why would you make the bet then? Because I thought I could, obviously. <laughs> How could you not name two Beatles songs? I, That's I, I named um, Help. Well, the problem was I got one wrong. I named Help and Hold My Hand. Turns out that was I want to hold your hand. Yes, I was. <laughs> yeah, so I lost the bet because I I misnamed one of the songs. Why not just like Hey Jude? Because I was trying to th- I thought of two right away. I thought I had the right name. <laughs> I I see. So you didn't have like an unlimited opportunity. Right. You had two shots and you right. missed both of them. I no help is a help is a song. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay, so you missed. Uh, I got you one out of second. two. Yeah. Uh, no, I actually can name I mean, Eleanor Rigby. See, there you go. I did another one. Uh, but okay. I'm not, I'm just not a big enough fan to have known for sure what the name of the song was. Right, right. Okay, well, yeah. All right, then. Fair enough. So back in Iceland, <laughs> since we're on our way back to Iceland, Andy. Yeah, uh, in a yellow submarine. By, apparently by way of Liverpool. Uh uh, back in Iceland, Botley's mother Gudrun and her fourth husband, uh, Thorkell Eilfsson, have settled into a very comfortable life together. Uh, Thorkell is a successful man who makes himself well-liked for his generosity and good counsel, and Gudrun is still one of the prominent and most clever women in Iceland. Uh, and one night, as they sleep, Thorkell oh, has a dream. time for dream prophecies again. It's my favorite yes. literary topic. So uh, what none. is the dream? Heavy headdress? Well, that's what Gudrun wants to know. She uh, she pressures him to tell her what he dreamed, and eventually he gives in. And Thorkell says, Well, I dreamed that my beard grew and grew so long that it lay over all mm-hmm. Bredefjord. And I think it means that I will expand my dominion over all the fjord. Interesting take. That may be, but I believe it means you'll be dipping your beard into the waters of Bredefjord instead. 
Meaning, well, meaning what? Uh, he's gonna drown. She means he's gonna die. So, what? <laughs> uh, Goodwin's a dream interpreter now, and also that's he's your jar jar. Die. So, is that better? <laughs> I mean, it was short no, notice. It came out of nowhere. Terrible. You said you sound like a bad Muppet. Um, I, I did my best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not like dream reading is a complex skill. But remember, when she was having her own dreams interpreted by guest Oldlifson, we talked about how Guthrin might very well be asking for an interpretation that she already knows. So it's possible that she's pretty good at this. Actually, now that you mention it, she might not be interpreting his dream at all. That's true. Uh, because didn't her dream already tell her the fate of her fourth husband? It, it did. Yes. Yes. It said, well, well, guess the old Lifson said, hang on. Here's the book. Uh, so Thorkettle, her fourth husband, is represented uh, in her dream by a golden helmet. Um, um, and we have that that nice drawing of Guthrun's dreams mm-hmm. uh, by uh, Scarpathan illustrator from long ago. Um, so if you can go find that one, great. <laughs> now, guest says... You dreamed that the helmet tumbled into the waters of Fjord, which indicates that this fourth husband will encounter this fjord on the last day of his life. Well, notwithstanding Guthrun's gloomy predictions, uh, Thorkel's star seems to be on the rise. Uh, and soon, he and Guthrun start thinking that their new hall needs an equally impressive church to go with it. Their new hall, yes. Uh, this is the one that he just built after they got married. Right, so this is the hall that was bigger than the one that they held a wedding for 160 people in. Yes. Uh, they want a church to match that. Uh, yeah. That was a couple of years ago, right? You build a longhouse at haste, repent at leisure. Oh, okay. Uh, Thorkell is now thinking that he needs a church to support his status, to cement his place as the leading man of Breithafjord. Probably should have built that instead of upgrading his hall, but, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, now, when you're in the market for lumber to build a really impressive church, there's really only one place to go. North America. No. Okay. Eastern Europe. You're doing this on purpose. The Cedar Forest of Humbaba. (laughs) No, Norway. I was implying Norway. I mean, that was my next guess, but I do like the idea of them traveling to Humbaba. It does. Isn't that great? Yeah. Now, there is a lot of trips to Norway in the final chapters of this saga. Any chance of running into his stepsons there? No, this is actually happening while Butley's off founding the Varangian Guard in the oh, Lakshala sure. Saga's headcanon. Yeah, well, King Olaf is still on the throne, so we're still in the late 1020s, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorkettle already knows his way around Norway. He's been there. He was uh, off in Norway, in fact, when Gudrun made her crafty oath not to marry any man in Iceland other than Thorgils. So when he returns to the king's court, well, he's assured of a friendly welcome there. Right. Oh, and he also brings his uh, his son Geller along. Yes. Uh, and the, the reunion with the king goes smoothly, and arrangements are made for a shipload of wood. But Thorkell doesn't just want the king's wood. He <laughs> wants the king's church. Now, now. Hey, king. Is that a stack of wood in your pants, or are you just glad to see me? I mean... <laughs> No, 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 no. No? Uh, And he just wants to copy the king's church, right? Uh, Down to the last inch. That's it. Five inches is more than enough, says the king. You know, um, see, this doesn't work if you make the subtext text. I'm trying to to lay in all these these subtle jokes, and you're just (laughs) insist on shining the Klieg lights on them. Sorry about that. I will be more subtle in the future. (laughs) Uh, So... One morning, 
the king and a few of his men happen to get up early. Uh, and when they wander outside, they see Thorkell up on top of the church, measuring the beams and taking notes. Yeah. And this is just too much for the king of Norway. Thorkettle, is that you up there? Can it be you're planning to cut timber for your church in Iceland on the model of this one here? Right you are, my lord. It's a nice one, isn't it? Mm. We'll subtract two L's off the length of every beam you're measuring, and your church will still be the greatest in Iceland. And while you're at it, subtract one Kadam to honor the Hebrew god whose ark this is. And the king's men laugh and laugh. Architectural snobbery. It's the Uh most vicious form of mockery. (laughs) You know, a full-size church is going to look awfully silly next to your fun-sized country. Hey, Frank Lloyd wrong. Don't forget to leave room for the sheepfolds and your cow-pat houses. I say your churches lack the arched windows and vaulted ceilings of even the early Gothic revival. (laughs) Call those buttresses flying? They're barely walking. (laughs) And and so on and so on. Uh, Uh, These are just the jokes that you'd hear in your your average architectural program at any university. (laughs) These snippy architectural jokes. Yes. Uh, Unsurprisingly, Thorkell isn't thrilled to be the target of Norwegian scorn. Keep your wood, then, if you fear giving of it too freely or regret your generosity. But I'll not chop a single L's length from the church I will build, and I lack neither the energy nor the means to get timber elsewhere. Not exactly a scathing retort, but... It lacks a certain zip, but uh, yeah. there's that inferiority complex again, right? This is this has been an undercurrent throughout this saga, uh, even more than in most. Right? The worry about whether Iceland is good enough. Mm-hmm. And the occasional confirmation from Norwegian characters that it's not. That it's kind of a backwater. Mm-hmm. Until you meet Kjartan or Boltley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, this was the justification for Boltley wanting to travel abroad. He said a man is thought of as ignorant if he's only lived in Iceland. you, you got to get right. out of town. Right. Thorkettle's a big man in Iceland. Maybe the most powerful man in Breithafjord at this point. Yeah. But in Norway, he's treated as a small-timer. Mm-hmm. A, a vain upstart whose attempt to compete with a king makes him a figure of ridicule. Incidentally, John, I was just talking to one of my advisees today about what she's going to do after she graduates. Um, and she said, well, I would like to, Could instead of a jumping... Norwegian architect? No. Uh, she said, I, 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 I've spent my whole life in Mississippi. I think it's important that I go and travel and see something of the world. And so we talked about joining the Peace Corps or AmeriCorps or other opportunities that are available to her aside from like study abroad and that kind of stuff. And uh, she was saying the same basic thing, right? That uh, staying here and this being my only experience isn't enough. I need to get out and see the world. I think it's interesting to note that is a universal opinion, right? That is a universal feeling. Yeah. That failing to travel limits your scope, limits your horizons, even if you live someplace that people would think of as being kind of worldly. Yeah, is that true? I grew up, um, I grew from, up in Queens, and I felt I the same say. way. You know, I, I always very much felt provincial in Queens in some ways. Interesting. You know, that, that you, you only have Manhattan one experience. You to really make it, right? Right. <laughs> That's, you know, you only have one experience, right? So what I wanted to do was to get out and live in the rural world for a long time. I wanted mm-hmm. to see other countries, travel to other places. I think everybody has that feeling at some point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, back to the, the story here. Right, right. He, <laughs> King Olaf does realize uh, that he has offended his guests. So he tries to smooth things over a bit. And he says, look, look, 
You're a great man, a man of great worth, a man of no small ambition. These things speak well of you. Of course, it's absurd for a farmer's son like you to compete with men like us. Ouch. But I won't begrudge you the timber. <laughs> Though even if you use it all to build your church, I think it won't be large enough to contain your conceit. That's smoothing things over. He is a king. I mean, he's not necessarily used to apologizing. <laughs> Fair enough. You know? Uh, yeah. And Olaf's not finished. He he adds, In any case, unless I'm mistaken, people will get little use from this timber. And you'll not be able to build any structure with it after all. Again, not not great at mending fences, Olaf. Well, I mean, he is still the king. And what he's saying is just giving voice to what many Icelanders believed Norway thought of them, right? I guess, yeah. And and if people are interested in the context for this dynamic, by the way, um, you should check out uh, Anne-Marie Long's book, uh, Iceland's Relationship with Norway from 870 to 1100. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe Theodore M. Anderson's article, The King of Iceland. Um, cool, but you, you kind of buried the lead, right? <laughs> Did I? I mean, why doesn't Olaf think Thorkettle will build a church with the timber? Oh, well, uh, Thorkettle thinks that this is another bit of mockery. And he and the king are somewhat standoffish with each other for the rest of his stay. But Olaf was just making a point, right? Well, uh, this, this is, is this is another prophecy. This is another prophecy, yes. Yeah, exactly. Everyone except Thorkettle can see his fate coming at him full speed. And Olaf, I think right. we've established in the past, has a kind of a foresight. He can predict the future. Yeah, well, and Thorkettle's a busy man. I mean, he can't keep track of everything that everybody's saying about him. Uh, like besides, everybody's saying you're going to die oh soon. Oh, my God. Everybody keeps telling this guy he's going to die. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't uh, be getting on that boat. I'd be like, I live in Norway. Seriously. Uh, but uh, no, he's got to get back to Iceland in time for winter. Ah, uh, yes. So he does get the full load of lumber, uh, size extra long. Mm-hmm. And he and the king patch things up before he departs. It's a nice, uh, nice uh, departure. And he has a smooth trip. But he's left the travel a little bit late in the season, possibly because he was still miffed and didn't want to spend another winter in Norway with everyone laughing at the size of his church. His, uh, his potential church. Yes, his potential church. So when he gets to Iceland, and yes, he does get back to Iceland, for those of you thinking he would drown at sea. Right, he's not, he's not going to drown right away. Thorkell puts in at Hurtafjord and has the timbers stored there for the winter rather than try to transport them in the poor weather. And then he returns to Helgafetl, and he and Gudrun spend their time entertaining guests on a lavish scale. It's a great deal for him. Yeah, again, Thorkell is clearly politicking here. Right. He's he's making his move to become the big man of Breithafjord. Yeah. Uh, the church, the new hall, the ostentatious displays of wealth and generosity. It's all part of the package. Yeah. And it, it's working. I, I believe the, the saga reports to us at some point in Thorkettle's story that he is second in command only to Snorri Gothi in terms of power mm-hmm. in the district. Mm-hmm. So he's he's done well for himself. And everyone is full of praise, uh, both for Thorkettle and for Guthrun. And by spring, the only real element missing from his Gothorth is a first-class place of worship. He needs a big church. And to that end, Thorkettle spends the end of the winter staying with his kinsman, Thorsten of Jaskagar, who lives near the lumber storage shed. Ah. So now all he has to do is arrange for transporting the wood to Helgefell, and he can get started on his facsimile Norwegian church. Ah, if only it were that simple. Part 52 the roaring of my kinsman's killer. Well, that's a hell of a title. That one yeah, goes in is. the list of good ones, John. 
Well, that's a, this is actually just a direct quote from the saga. I can't take credit for this one. It's good, though. Uh, you know, by the way, since we're already here, I think we actually are going to get through to the end of this thing. Well, too late for champagne. Have a beer. Don't mind if I do. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you said it isn't that simple. Why isn't it that simple, Andy? <laughs> it would be nice if something were that simple for a change. Well, I mean, the problem is that Thorstein, Thorkettle's host, is trying to make his neighbor sell him land. You okay. see, the neighbor has recently fallen on hard financial times, and Thorstein sees an opportunity to snatch up some cheap land. And we all know at this stage of the game in Iceland's mm-hmm. history, land is hard to come by. Yeah, that's not really a problem. I mean, it might be a little predatory, but it's not a problem. Well, you see, the neighbor is uh, somebody we know. It's uh, Hot Thor uh, Olafsson. Okay, so there is a problem. Yeah. Uh, this is the brother of Kjartan Olafsson. That's him. And uh, it gets worse. Uh, Hot uh, Thor's financial difficulty is that he recently had to pay a very large cash settlement to the sons of Boltley Thorlikson. So, you know. And those are uh, Thorkell's stepsons. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so, Thorkell just wandered into a situation that could reignite the entire feud with the Olafsons if it goes wrong. Yeah, and Thorstein knows that Hot Thor is. He's not likely to want to sell land to a relative of the Boltlesons, not even a relation in law. So, mm-hmm. and it's also kind of humiliating the whole situation, right? Right. So right. He, he's Thorstein is going to bring Thorkettle along to help him deal with the situation. If maybe, maybe if things get a little violent, you know. So, all right then. Nothing's ever simple. I accept that. Yeah. Now, at this point, the narrative turns to Hot Thor on his farm, and the saga does an interesting little flashback thing. It shows us uh, Hot Thor welcoming Thorstein and Thorkel to his home, and he makes pleasant small talk with them. Um, he's almost done on the farm, or he's almost alone on the farm because his men are off cutting up a beached whale, mm-hmm. not fighting over it, just cutting it up. Yep. And the only man left, besides Hot Thor, is a servant named uh, Bainir the Strong. Bainir the Strong. Uh, now, as everyone will, of course, remember, sure. uh, Banir was mentioned briefly back in Chapter 24 as one of the three trusted servants of Olaf Peacock. <laughs> uh, you know, you remember that. Yeah. Uh, he was a carpenter and a most capable man. Yes, but that was a very, very long time ago. Banir was a co-worker of Aun the White and Aun Twigbelly, and they've been gone for a long time. And the fact that he's back at the farm when all the rest of the workers are off flinting a whale suggests that he's probably a bit past his prime as well. Yeah, but he's still going strong. Uh, Bainier's no spring chicken, but he's still able to carry an axe and use it if he needs to. Yes. So as Hathor is chatting with Thorstein and Thorkettle, the narrative flashes back to when he and Bainier spotted the visitors coming over a hill. So we have a break in the narrative as we move backward mm-hmm. in time. Here, Hathor tells Bainier... I know why these two have come. They're here to ask to buy my land. And they're going to ask to speak to me privately to make the offer. No doubt they'll try to sit on either side of me. If they show any hostility, I will attack Thorkettle, and you, you will attack Thorstein. I'm going to trust you with this because you've shown my family many, many years of loyalty. And we will send servants off to the neighbor's farms and... And hopefully they will return with help by the time we need to see these two off. Yeah, okay, there's a lot going on there. Um, by the way, Boehner doesn't say anything. He just grabs his axe. Hand me an axe. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, is the, what is the name of that book? 
from the, the, the quote from Yon Saga? Well, why is your axe bloody? Oh, why is your axe bloody? No, hand, hand me the axe is uh, Freitas in uh, Greenlander's Saga. That's right. It's a no- I knew it was like a notable <laughs> witticism, right? Hand me an axe. Yep. Yeah. Hand okay. me the axe. Yeah, but uh, I, I like Bainier. Uh, it's it's he's silent, but he picks the axe up and he's ready mm-hmm. to go. It's I like to see that. It's a loyal family retainer there. It's the old feudal spirit, but you know, with an axe. Yeah. So the conversation goes exactly as Hopdor predicted. There's some small talk and some refreshments, and then Thorstein asks to speak privately with Hopdor over a, a small business matter. So the two of them move off some distance from the farm, with Thorkettle following Thorstein and Baneer following Hopdor. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that Hopdor wasn't the only one making plans beforehand. Because when he sits down at the edge of the field, Thorstein and Thorkettle both sit on the edges of his cloak so that he can't get up. It's, it's clever. Yeah. Uh, they argue for a while, and at first, Hopdor pretends to be open to Thorstein's offer to buy the property, and then he seems resistant. And it goes on like that for a while. Eventually, Hotdoor's stalling tactics start to annoy Thorkell. Don't you see what's going on here, Thorsten? He's been leading us on the whole time. Now, it's kind of surprising to have Thorkell be the observant one here. He hasn't been exactly <laughs> wowing the crowd with his brains so far in the saga, just his pocketbook. Yeah. Uh, but he's right. Uh, remember that Hotdoor sent servants to his neighbors to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Right? He is stalling. Uh, Thorkell continues... We've been sitting here letting him mock and delude us. If you want a good outcome from this attempt to gain his land, it's clear we'll need to spare no pains. Mm, Clever use of words there. Uh, But Thorstein's not exactly the leap into action kind of guy. That's kind of why Mm -hmm. he wanted Thorkettle along on the trip. (laughs) So instead of erupting into violence, Thorstein says, "Mm, Yeah, so Haldor, tell me straight, are you selling us this land or not? Yeah, and Hultor's also tired of waiting, so he answers, I think I can plainly state that you'll go home empty-handed this evening. Um, all right then. Well, I offer you one of two possibilities. The first choice is to agree to the purchase of land by this agreement and to enjoy my friendship in return. The second choice, which is the poorer one, I'll admit, <laughs> is for you to be forced to take my hand and agree to the sale against your will. Right, and at this point, uh, Hotdoor jumps to his feet, and he moves so suddenly that his cloak clasp tears, and Thorsten and Thorkettle are left sitting on the cloak, with Hotdoor standing over them. I disagree. I think something else will happen before I make an oath of sale I don't wish to make. Or, or what might that be? I foresee a wood axe, wielded by the worst of men, embedded in your skull. Mm-hmm. That'll put an end to your high-handedness and your bullying ways. So, uh, at this point, I think it's fair to say, subtleties out the window. Yeah, Hathor has a refreshingly direct way about him. Well, after enough time's passed, yes. <laughs> uh, now, Thorkettle jumps right in to join the insults. That's an evil prophecy, Hathor, and not one likely to be fulfilled. And I'd say you've done enough here today that you deserve to hand over your land without receiving anything for it at all. Oh, Thorkell, I haven't forgotten you. You'll have the bladder rack of Bravefjord in your arms before I'll be forced to sell my land. Look at that. Just prophecies flying every which way now. Yeah, Haltor is Margaret of Anjou all of a sudden. <laughs> He's like the fourth person to predict Thorkettle's death by drowning. Well, I mean, you know, Thorkettle's not very bright, I think, so it kind of needs to be spelled out for him. Yeah. And while Thorkettle is puzzling over what all these drowning predictions could possibly mean... 
Hathor runs back to his farm, where his neighbors have just arrived to help. And so Thorkettle and Thorsten are forced to leave without accomplishing anything, except well, for tearing a cloak. And uh, stirring up new resentments between the clans, sure. Okay, yes, they did do that too. Yeah. So, you know, not a totally wasted trip. So, you know, as you might expect, Thorstein's not thrilled with how things went. Mm-hmm. He says, Cousin, why did you hesitate to attack Hathor and do him some damage? Did you not see Banner standing over you with his axe at the ready? It would have been fatal to you if I tried anything. He'd have brought the axe down on your head the moment I made a move. Oh, well, I did not know that. But, uh... While we're talking about the obvious threats to our lives, what do you make of that prophecy about you drowning? Mm. Oh, I wasn't paying attention to that. I was, Jesus, I was too busy working kettle. out the details of sailing home. Come on. <laughs> now, yeah, we added that last bit. They didn't say that, uh, but it should be no. in the saga, I think, because the very next scene takes place a few days later as Thorkettle and Thorstein look out at a stormy sky as Thorkettle loads his ship for the trip to his farm at Helgafettle. And Thorstein tries and tries to convince Thorkettle to delay the trip, but Thorkettle refuses. Well, you know, he's eager to go home and build that church before he forgets how many L's long it's supposed to be. That's right. And when Thorkettle and his crew finally set sail, Thorstein goes into his house and lays down to wallow in his grief. His serving woman is shocked to see tears rolling down onto his pillow. An tears hour later, on my pillow. An hour later, the storm begins to howl. And Thorstein says, yeah, there you can hear the roaring of my kinsman's killer. Yeah. Yeah, I can't I can't take credit for that. That is a good line, though. It's great. Uh, it's really great. Now, meanwhile, out on the water, Thorkettle and the nine men with him are sailing along the Braithafjord coast. The weather turns dangerous, but they keep going. Because apparently, Thorkettle doesn't believe in prophecy. Uh-huh. No, he does not. Uh, at some point, he should just believe in meteorology, like... The storms are brewing. You live in Iceland. Yeah. You'd think you'd know. Well, you know, he's limited in some ways. Uh, the ship continues on and survives the worst of the storm. Uh, so all seems well. He's he's cheated fate once again. Uh, but as they pass the island of Bjarnare, they relax their guard, and the ship is hit by a massive gust of wind that knocks it flat. People on shore are watching in horror as the ship keels over. Remember, the ship is very heavy. It's full of timber. So, yeah. you know, it's... It, uh, uh, a ship that heels over with that kind of weight and it is not going to pop back up. Uh, and the wind is too rough for anyone to attempt a rescue. And even though they're close to land, the men are all swept under by the current and by the waves. The load of timber breaks up and floats to shore over the next few days, but there isn't a single survivor. And so, Thorkell finally drowns under the collective weight of all the prophecies that said he would drown. Uh, and as Hathor predicted, he drowns with his arms full of the bladder rack of Braithafjord. So, uh, hold on. I meant to ask this earlier. Hathor said what to Thorkill? Uh, 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 you'll have the bladder rack of Braithafjord in your arms before I'm forced to sell land. Uh, yeah, what is that? So, the, the it's just a bladder rack that I'm interested in. What is bladder rack? So it's a reference to drowning, right? It's another reference to drowning. Yeah, I mean, I everyone know that, seems obviously. pretty well agreed about how Thorkell is going to die. I, I know, but but the bladder rack. Why? What is that? Seaweed. Uh, he dies clinging to the seaweed that floats off Braithafjord. See, here I was thinking he was going to be have a, a racked bladder. Like uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't sure. Yeah. Um. I, I guess I didn't really think about this. It just struck me as a curious bit of translation. 
Yeah, it's it's just seaweed. Uh, bladder rack is the seaweed most people in North America or Northern Europe imagine when they think of seaweed. It's a dark green, long fronds, little with little bladders of air that almost look like pustules. Yeah, I know those. Uh, yeah, some people call it sea oak or rockweed. Uh, neat little factoid, by the way. Bladder rack was the original natural source for iodine. Oh. Uh, it's actually still used to treat stomach problems and hypothyroidism. Lovely. Uh, I don't know whether that would have been much of a comfort to Thorkell in his final moments, but I think it's interesting. He's he's drowning and he's like, finally, my joints feel great. <laughs> Wonderful. My stomach has never been better. That's right. Um, now, you just happen to know this much about seaweed. Is that right? I, I live literally a 10 minute drive from the Atlantic Ocean, Andy. Seaweed comes up occasionally. <laughs> uh, but you said you thought this was a translation thing. Did you actually look it up? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, so the Icelandic is uh, Thongelshofuf, uh, which literally translates to something like the tangle head. But, uh, mm. but it just means seaweed or a tangle of seaweed, that kind of thing. You can clump, throw yeah. the word in and see what it looks like. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, a clump. Yeah. It, it's nonspecific, but I'm assuming our translator, Kniva Kuhns, decided on bladder rack for the alliteration with Bray the Fjord. Right. Given that her name is alliterative, I imagine that she's a... She's a big fan. She's probably more inclined that way. Yeah. Uh, I, I really do think it's a fair translation, though. I mean, bladder rack really is kind of the default seaweed. Um, and I cl- can't claim authority on 11th century beachcombing, but I've walked along a few Icelandic beaches in the 21st century, and bladder rack is, is definitely found in abundance along the shore. Yeah. Uh, speaking of what's found along the shore, given mm-hmm. the uh, scarcity of, of timber in medieval Iceland, can you imagine the guy who owns the the property, the shoreline? Oh my god! Along what a which all that stuff comes in, and he gets Absolutely. to claim it. I could build a pretty good sized church out of this. That's right. Yeah, I don't know. He's he's not close <laughs> to his property yet, right? Uh, well, he's close, but no, it's not. You know, it's they only find a very small amount. The people who uh, are from his farm only ever find a small amount of the lumber, which means yeah. the rest of it has been. Snatched up by people who were a little bit quicker on the job. Or snatched up or carried out with the tide right. and then redistributed around Iceland, well, you know? But remember, there's a, there's a bunch of witnesses on shore who see the ship go down. Yeah. Right. So there's there's actually people right there to yeah, grab any like, lumber that comes ashore. It. Yeah. Yeah, pretty funny. <laughs> but you don't get, you know, 30-foot-long uh, timbers very often. Yeah. All right. So uh, are we done with the uh, Thor kettle and his timber? I, mean, I got more, but we can move on. Uh, it's time to visit Helgefell, where uh, Gudrun is waiting for Thorkell to come home with his load of Norwegian wood. Oh, this saga just keeps going. Part 53. Gudrun gets a noise complaint from a downstairs neighbor. Uh, that is, is that a title from the text, or is that... Yeah, a that's a direct translation from the Icelandic. <laughs> sure it is. Sure it is. No, this is a good one, too. You're on fire tonight, John. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, the, the night of the shipwreck, Gudrun is going about her business, unaware of what's happened. And she's on her way to church that evening, when she meets a ghost in the churchyard. No preamble here, huh? Just, uh, just right in with a ghost in the graveyard. I said ghost in the churchyard, but it's meant to be surprising. Well, we, we should probably have mentioned earlier that uh, that this day, the day Thorkell drowns, is Maundy Thursday. Is it Monday or Thursday, John? It's Maundy Thursday. I know, I know. Uh, I, why does that matter, though? Well, it explains why she's on her way to the church at night. 
a good Christian woman goes every night, John. But uh, I mean, but, uh, you know, about this ghost. What about it? Yeah, stop stalling and tell us about the ghost. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a tall, imposing specter. And as Gudrun enters the yard, it appears and leans down towards her. And it says, I bring news of great importance. Oh, well, keep silent about it, you wretch. And this, by the way, is, the I think, the best thing about Gudrun. Yeah. She, she just can't be intimidated by anything. She's she's literally being confronted by death. And her response is, oh, well, fuck you, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Obviously, you're going to bleep that. But <laughs> I'm not going to bleep that. That one, that oh, one deserves no. to stay, you know, because <laughs> uh, that is the sentiment that, that Gudrun has, uh, yep. has left us with. Uh, but, uh, to, you know, to be clear, that doesn't mean she isn't affected by supernatural visions of doom. She just isn't going to admit it. Exactly. That's what I mean. She's got that noble hauteur thing down to a science. Yeah. But I should say, even if she's not showing it, uh, the next vision is definitely a lot for her to take. As she reaches the church door, she thinks she sees Thorkell and his crew standing silently next to the building, dripping seawater. Oh, boy. Presumably with armloads of bladderwrack. Uh, she ignores them and goes into the church, but when she returns home after the service, she searches through the farmhouse looking for Thorkell, and obviously he's nowhere to be found. The next day, Good Friday, she sends her servants out along the shore looking for Thorkell's ship, and on Saturday, the servants return with news of the wreck. Yeah, it's not hard to figure out what happened, since the broken pieces of the ship and the timbers from the ship's hold are now washing up all along the beaches, like we were talking mm-hmm. about before. And obviously, the sudden death of the local Gothi is kind of a big deal. And the news is all over the place immediately. People are on their cell phones, it's on the gram, it's everywhere. Sure. Now, Gudrun is privately grief-stricken over the loss of Thorkettle, but publicly continues to behave in what the saga calls a dignified manner. Which, I'm assuming, means stoically. Uh, one other thing. Among the wreckage, the searchers find a beam of the ship with Skolfnung, the magical sword, lodged in the wood. Now, that's interesting because earlier we were told that Skolfnung was stored in a chest on the ship. Yeah. So, Thorkettle tried to survive by anchoring himself to the ship's timbers with his sword. Most likely, yeah. Very uh, cool. But... At some point, he lost his grip and then sank down to sleep with the bladderack. Which means Thorkettle may be out of our story, but Skolfnung's still around. Mm-hmm. The sword is now given to Geller, Thorkell's uh, 14-year-old son. and You can't keep a good sword down. Well, just wait. <laughs> All right, so we're at something of a crossroads in our timeline here. Um, actually, John, do we have a second to deal with timelines? I know what you're thinking about. Yeah, this timeline doesn't add up at all. Yeah, exactly. It's a problem. Uh, actually, why don't we finish this section up and deal with the timeline stuff in a little bit? Yeah, that's fair. Um, so yeah, let's. Well, what's left in this section? It's all a hodgepodge. Let's. Yeah, let's yeah. So show them the quilt. Uh, <laughs> well, Gudrun was already living in an increasingly Christian land before Thorkell's death, but now she turns to religion as a comfort. She prays several times every day and has a dedicated space in her house for kneeling for her prayers. And she's still living with her granddaughter, Herdis Butler daughter. And one night, young Herdis has a dream. Ah, more dreams. Well, it's a sort of a dream. She's visited by an angry old woman in a woven cape, who tells her, Tell your grandmother I don't care for her company. 
She tosses and turns over me each night and pours tears down on me so that they burn me, they're so hot. I'm telling you this because I prefer your company, though you have a strange air about you. I'd get along with you fine if the distress caused to me by Guthrin were not so great. Okay. Well, that was real. I mean, that's a really interesting and strange out of nowhere kind of uh, scene, isn't it? Like, yeah, I mean, and honestly, you know, for for a, a specter, this woman's quite reasonable. <laughs> I mean, she she says she likes Herodis just fine, and she uh-huh. wouldn't mind Gudrun if she would just stop pouring burning tears on her. It's such a weird moment because it doesn't fit. <laughs> generally, it doesn't really fit with the saga. But I think no. that's the part we need to talk about with the the yeah. burning tears. Yeah, um, I think we're meant to understand this is a pagan spirit. And this pagan spirit has come to complain about Gudrun disturbing her body's rest. Yeah, I mean, this is an example of something that we've seen in other sagas, right? The the restless dead of Iceland who aren't thrilled about the decision of the living to convert to Christianity. Yeah. Uh, well, it's these kids today. No respects for tradition. Sure. Uh, and the living need to find ways to coexist with the dead, or at least to get them to go back to sleep. Yeah. Uh, in this case... They dig up the ground under the floor where Gudrun prays, and they find the blackened bones of a long-dead prophetess. Ah, that explains uh, it. I don't know how they know they're prophetess bones, but there you go. Oh, no, it, it uh, said that she had a staff with her. Oh, there you go. Yeah. There you so go. I ignored she has, that. She has a, an artifact, a beautiful staff that would be used by a prophetess. There you go. And nobody else would ever have a stick next to them, so it has to be a prophetess. It's a staff, a very special <laughs> staff. It's a special stick. Uh, they, they rebury these bones as far away from the house as they can, and there are no further disturbances. Yeah. Oh, well, so many things here. Uh, first of all, there are prophetesses buried at Helgefettel now, apparently, I guess. Well, you got to put them somewhere. Shouldn't we have uh, heard about that some at some point I, in the Erpiki saga? This is what I'm saying. Helgefettel's got a pretty well-documented past in the yes. saga. Do you think somebody would have mentioned the dead prophetess? You'd think so. Now, look, Gudrun got this property in a trade with Snorri Gothi. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't buy a used shovel from Snorri. He's definitely the sort of guy who would forget to mention the dead prophetess in the garden. <laughs> Don't go digging too deep Actually, now. Yeah, uh, just just plant, you know, surface plants. Yeah. Uh, ferns, maybe. Uh <laughs> No, actually, looking at this again, I'm not so much worried about that. I'm worried about why the dead prophetess thinks that she and little yes. Herdis would get along so well. Yeah. right. The ghost woman says to Herdis, I prefer your company, although you have a strange air about you. I'd get along with you fine if the distress caused me by Gudrun were not so great. So, Andy, what's up with Herdis? What's up with Herdis? I, I had, I've always intended, every time I read this part which is twice now, um, to, to go back and think about that a little bit more deeply because it's an interesting comment. I guess one thing we could say would be that it it's really serving to highlight Gudrun's faith, her mm-hmm. devotion to Christ, right? Herdis maybe is not all in. She's a, <laughs> she's a, a woman of Iceland, I guess. I don't uh, know. I don't know. What do you make of it? I, 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 I tried. I scratched around a little bit. I looked in a few articles. Um, I couldn't find anything about this. Uh as far as I can tell, there hasn't even been a lot of like attention paid to it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's been mentioned once or twice, but nobody really discusses it in any detail. And I think it's because we don't know much about Herdis. Yeah, I think there, there's got to be I mean, some other story about Herdis that we're not getting here. Right. To, to kind of flesh it out. Because Herdis is an important person, 
Yeah. And when we get to the end of the saga, we'll talk about sort of why she's an important person. But um, yeah, this is just, this is an odd moment. I would, I think I know, but I am totally making it up. So I have nothing. I'm going to, I'm going to hang on to that in case I am wrong. Okay. All right. <laughs> Which is very likely. Fair enough. Uh, so the other curious bit is that Gudrun's tears are burning the bones of the dead pagan in the basement. Well, not, not the basement. Well, the sub-basement, the grave, whatever. Yeah. Besides, her, her tears are burning the bones because she's pray, she's a praying Christian. She's a woman of faith. Her, her tears uh-huh. are like holy water. Formerly mm-hmm. alive pagans, they don't like that sort of thing. Right. And But these do seem to be particularly sizzling tears. Mm-hmm. Uh, prayers don't bother the prophetess's rest at all. Right? Uh, Gudrun's tears are special. We might read them as merely symbolic of the changing of the faith or even a kind of unwelcome forced baptism. Mm. Uh, Bjarni Gudnason and Torfi Tolinius have both said that the uh, the bones of the vulva are burned by Gudrun's tears because they are signs of true contrition. They are holy and therefore active against pagan remains. Well, John, I don't know about you, but I like my vulva to be boneless. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Don't do that. Don't do uh, that to me. Eddie, no. Uh, V-O-L-V-A. That's oh. <laughs> Volva prophetess. Yeah, like a pro. Yeah, they need bones. Otherwise, they can't stand up. Right. Exactly. Yeah, um, that's, that's important. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's, so it's a big claim, though. That, yeah. That's putting Gudrun's tears almost into the category of relics. Yeah, and Gudrun is many things, but her life to this point doesn't suggest saint. No, uh, more about that later. Um, but uh, before we move on to the next section, can we go back to the timeline problem just a second? Oh, sure. Yeah, go for it. So, yeah, we are told that Thorkett died in the eighth year of his fifth decade. So he's 48. Very good. Math. It's math. It's easy. Um, the problem here is the next line. It was four years before the fall of Olaf the Saint. Ah, yes, okay. Um, Here's the chronology we've been working on. Yeah. It only sounds like we're making this up as we go along, but, you know. Yes. We write down notes, just like real scholars. Yes. Uh, All right. So, Gudrun and Butli married either the same year as the conversion of Iceland or the year after. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So, about the year 1000. Fair. And Butli is born after they've been married for at least five years. And he is 12 when he and Thorlek kill Helgi Hardvinson. So... Around the year 1017, probably. Uh-huh. Uh, and Gudrun doesn't see Thorkell again until at least a year after that. And then they get married and have a son, Geller. Mm-hmm. So Geller can't have been born before 1019 at the very earliest. And Geller, we're told, is 14 when his father dies and a very promising young man. So if you add all of that up, the year should be around 1032. 1033. Like I said, 1033, exactly. Okay, uh, bear with us, folks, because this actually matters for how people have used this saga. Uh, Thorkell is supposed to have died four years before the fall of Olaf the Saint. Uh, this is King Olaf of Norway, the, the second one, not Tryggvason. The second one, yes. Uh, this Olaf died in 1030, but he lost the throne before that, in about 1028. But whether the fall, the fall of Olaf refers to the end of his reign or the end of his life... Thorkell's death in either 1024 or 1026 is definitely several years away from where the chronology of this saga puts it. Yeah. So the the problem here is that this saga dropped nearly a decade somewhere along the way while the Boltlessons were growing up. 
between mm-hmm. uh, Guthrun's third and fourth marriages. Yes, because we figured out earlier that Boltley is in Byzantium right now, supposedly founding the Varangian Guard. Of which, which he didn't. Yes, I know. Uh, but his arrival, we pegged around 1028, using the saga's logic up to that point. Yeah. But in Iceland, it's 1033. Well, now, you know. <laughs> we could assume that some time passed, since we're told that Boltley spent several years in Constantinople. So let's uh, let's just assume that then, huh? Yeah, but there's one more important date coming up, and it's a big one. It's a big one, because we're talking about Snorri Gothi's death. Yeah, I, I mean, spoilers, but yeah. yeah. The, the point is that a few more years are going to pass before, well, before that. Uh, we're almost to that section. Why don't we just move into the next section right now and cover it? Well, I thought you'd never ask. I was trying to move us along. Part 54. All's well that ends. All right. Well, so this is the last section. Yeah. And, and this last section is a lot of wrap up, as you might expect mm-hmm. from a saga this long and this involved. But the, the two big items are the death of Snorri Gothi and the last words of Guthrun Oldsby's daughter. Mm-hmm. So I suppose we should deal with Snorri first if we want to wrap up that chronology problem. So let's uh, do right. that. Yeah, go for it. So four years after the drowning of Thorkettle, Boltley Boltlison returns to Iceland. And his ship is loaded down with goods and treasures given to him by Princess. I mean, he really took that money that Snorri gave him and made it count. Mm-hmm. That money he's not going to pay back in any way. Doesn't need to. Uh, yeah, no, this saga really likes to exaggerate how much everyone likes Icelandic visitors. Uh, yes, yes. It doesn't name the princes for some reason. Well, you know, they're from Canada. He, he met him at Niagara Falls. You wouldn't know him. Gotcha. Actually, there is one specific reference. Uh, his best suit is a red cloak and a brocaded silk tunic given to him by the Emperor of Byzantium. Yeah, we've had a couple of these. Yeah. Hand on heart, I'm pretty sure this author couldn't name a Byzantine emperor of the early 11th century on a bet. Hand on heart, I'm not sure that this author could find Byzantium on a map. <laughs> But in addition to the numerous princes Boltley's been impressing in the Niagara Falls region, he's also been buying a new wardrobe. I mean, uh-huh. his entire new wardrobe now consists of silks and scarlet fabrics. And his weapons, they're all gold inlaid. Mm-hmm. So people start calling him Boltley the Elegant. From Olaf Peacock to Boltley the Elegant. Uh, and Kjartan and Gudrun, too. This saga likes its fancy dressers. Sure does. Speaking of which, Boltley visits Mama Gudrun. And his daughter, Herdis, first. And Herdis is like, who the hell are you? Exactly. <laughs> but the saga is not especially... believe has been visiting me at night, Dad. That's right. But uh, the saga isn't especially interested in that visit. We fast forward quickly to Boltley riding to Seilingstalstunga to reunite with his wife, Thordis, and his father-in-law, Snorri Gothi. And Snorri is excited, very delighted to see him. And he actually gives him run of the place. Well, there's good reason for that. Uh, Snorri's 70 years old now, yeah. and he's not in the best of health. In fact, the summer after Butley's arrival, Snorri takes to bed with what turns out to be a fatal illness. Yeah. Uh, before he dies, though, he summons his family and household and announces a decision. Butley, he says, it's my wish that you take over this farm and go thoth after me. The son of mine I expect to be foremost of the lot is Hotdor, but he's not in Iceland. And to be clear, that is Haltor Snorrison, not Haltor Olafsson, uh, the guy who refused to sell land a couple of chapters back. Haltor Snorrison. Right, right. Uh, Snorri then dies. 
Oh, good for him. And I might have said dies at a ripe old age when I was younger, but somehow 70 doesn't seem as venerable as it used to. <laughs> You're just knocking on the door. <laughs> uh, well, it might be even less venerable than that. Uh, this is the other part of the chronology problem, right? Because the saga tells us that Snorri died one year after the fall of King Olaf the Saint, according to the priest Ari the Learned. Right, so that's consistent with the death of Thorkell happening four years before the fall of Olaf. Sure, yeah, so that works. But it's not consistent with anything else, since that would put Snorri's death at either 1029 or 1031, which is way off from 1038, where the other events of the saga put it. Right, so, I mean, our apologies for harping on this. But the thing is that this one factoid, that Snorri dies the year after the fall of Olaf, it's repeated elsewhere in the sagas. Mm-hmm. It's one of the linchpins for trying to provide a timeline for the events of the sagas. And between this and the Varangian Guard thing, it's pretty clear that this author's grasp of 11th century history is suspect. Yeah, understandably so. I remember that at least 250 years have passed between these events and the writing of the saga. Mm-hmm. But it is one more stumbling block to relying on internal historical information in the sagas. Right. And the best quote on this, I think, is Arendt, who says, the chronology of this saga cannot bear too much close scrutiny. That's right. I mean, it's it's quite possible. I mean, it would make sense if the saga authors using a variety of sources and he's mm-hmm. got two different books that have contrasting narratives about the chronology. And he just doesn't he just doesn't account for that when he's writing. He's kind right, of copying right. and, and blending without really thinking about the math. But for reasons that we're going to see later on, you would think that he would just privilege Ari the Learned's version of history. You would hope so, yeah. Uh, But, okay, so at this point in the saga, uh, it launches into a few lists of descendants from the main lines of the saga. Uh, And I'll tell you, this part took probably the most time on the the Mm -hmm. genealogy. There's so many names here. (laughs) Yeah, Um, it's a lot. Yeah. All right, uh, so you try to spruce this up. What do we we got? I got nothing. Uh, So... (laughs) Gudrun's line is given through three of her children and grandchildren. We don't need to go too deeply into these, but it is interesting to note that Herdis grows up to marry Orm, the son of Hermann de Lugesen, mm-hmm. who you might remember is the chieftain who died from being shot from a grassy knoll at the end of Bandamana Saga. Uh, by an elf. That was never proven. It was suggested. Uh, by you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Herodis becomes matriarch of a line that eventually includes Abbot Kettle of Helgefem oh. and his brothers uh, in the early 13th century, all Ex- prominent men. It's exciting. Now, the, the, the real showstopper is Gudrun's son with Thorkettle. This is Geller, the, uh, the boy who inherited the farm and the sword Skofdung when Thorkettle drowned. Now, Geller uh, has two sons named Thorkils and Thorkettle. And Thorkils has a son named Ari Thorkilsen who is also known as Ari, Ari the Learned. Learned. Yes, that's right. The man, the myth, the legend. Uh, Ari Thorgelson is the great-grandson of Gudrun Olsweif's daughter. Mm-hmm. Now, Geller him... Oh, should we say who Ari the Learned is? Because he's kind of an important fella. We've talked about him before, but... Have I we? mean, yes, absolutely. Go I ahead. think it's a good time to remind them yeah, that Yeah, no, he, go ahead. So, yeah, just real quick. Uh, Ari Thorgelson, who is often referred to as Ari Infrodi that is, Ari the Learned or Ari the Wise. He was a 12th century Icelandic chieftain. He was a priest and also a chronicler. And so he's credited as one of, if not the first historians of Icelandic history. And he is the author of Bok, which you'll know as the Book of Icelanders that tells the stories of Iceland's first settlers. 
Now, if he wasn't involved in the writing of La Nama Book, that is the Book of the Settlements, uh, then Ari's work at least inspired its composition and paved the way for the eventual writing of the family sagas that we're reviewing on this very podcast. It's pretty cool. Yeah, we talked about him in the uh, the conversion uh, stories go, yeah. of Iceland, right? That uh, Ari is, uh, he has the, he's one of the last people to have a living memory of the conversion of Iceland. He, mm-hmm. he talked to uh, an old man who, as a child, was actually baptized uh, by yeah. one of Olaf Tryggvason's uh, emissaries. Uh, so that that legacy, sort of Ari is the living embodiment of that legacy of the last people to have a connection back to the conversion. That's right, yeah. So, um, back- And also is obviously a scholar in his own right. That's right. And um, now, back to Geller. <laughs> now, Geller himself has a pretty remarkable career. Uh, he mm. shows up here and there in the sagas, actually, and we're going to see him come into his own in Fjolstala Saga and uh, Ljosvetninga Saga. Can't believe we haven't done those yet, but those are no kidding. a couple I to know. look forward to. I know. still a couple of big ones waiting. Yeah. Um, it ain't over yet, though, because uh, Gudrun is growing elderly, but she's still living on her own terms. She's considered to be the noblest woman of her generation, and as religion becomes a bigger part of her life, she dedicates more and more of her time to her faith. In fact, the whole of her time, in the end, is dedicated to the Christian faith. Allegedly. Well, no. Textually, it's very clear. The saga tells us that she is, quote, the first woman in Iceland to become a nun and anchoress. Which seems pretty far-fetched, but we can let that go for the moment. Well, uh, uh, I don't know if you know, William Penchak has a whole theory about the way Gudrun is used in this text. And she, he's not the only one. Yeah. Um, I've, I've read other people's opinions about this as well. Yeah, we can talk about that when we get to our uh, summons. Sure, yeah, okay. Um, Gudrun, uh, as she ages, also loses her sight, mm-hmm. uh, which is almost a saga trope for extreme old age. Yeah, saga <laughs> says the guy in increasingly thick glasses, right? Yeah, but don't you wear contacts? I I mean, this is a, a private matter between me and my eyeballs. Oh, <laughs> fine. Uh, Botley and Gudrun remain close, uh, and Botley visits regularly, and the two of them sit together and talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings. Well, isn't that, isn't that lovely? And husbands. Uh, you forgot husbands. Oh, right, husbands. So many husbands. Right. Uh, and one day, Botley asks, will, will you tell me something, mother, that I'm curious about? Which, which man did you love most? Well, that's the million krona question, isn't it? <laughs> and Gudrun thinks for a minute and then says, Thorkettle was the most powerful of men and the most outstanding chieftain. None of them was more valiant than your father, Botli. Thord Ingemunderson was the wisest of these men and the most skilled in law. Of Thorvald I make no mention. Oof. <laughs> Well, that's one husband out of the running. Yeah. (laughs) Mother, I understand clearly enough what you say of the qualities of each of your husbands, but you haven't actually answered the question. Which did you love the most? There's no need to conceal it any longer. You're pressing hard on this point, son. If I wished to say it to anyone, you would be the one I'd choose. Well, I ask you again to tell me. Though I treated him the worst... I loved him best. I believe you say that in all sincerity. Thank you. And those 
are the last words of Gudrun in this saga. Mm-hmm. She she dies at Helgafetl and is buried there, and you can go and visit her grave mm-hmm. even today. It's the end of a long and complicated life. Yeah. Uh, officially, by the way, as you were saying, Gudrun's grave is still at Helgafetl. Mm-hmm. It's uh it's marked at the base of the hill. There's a tradition that if you start at her grave and walk to the top of Helgafetl without turning around or looking back or speaking a word, you will have three wishes granted to you. It's obviously a later addition to the Gurdjian legend, and uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I've tried it out. It didn't. It didn't work out. It didn't work out. No, it didn't work. Well, you should have made simpler wishes. <laughs> uh, uh, for those who haven't been to Helgafetl, it's a little under 250 feet of elevation. It's not an especially arduous climb, no. although there's. No real way to reach the top if you have mobility impairments. Yeah. Now, I I don't think the chance of getting three wishes is really what people are thinking about right now. There's a big question there. I know. I'm I'm letting it sit there for a second. Mm. But if you're so eager, let's talk about it. Who was Gudrun thinking of at the end of her life? Who did she love best? Well, I mean, she said the one she treated worst, she loved best. So... Mm -hmm. Immediately, it comes to mind uh, Thorvald. I know she said she didn't want to talk about him, but, you know, she kind of uh, humiliated him, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, sewed him that little blouse and divorced him and left him off emasculated. So Thorvald, obviously, but not really. Yeah, no, because I don't I don't think she felt like she treated him badly so much as he was contemptible and she treated him. Yeah, exactly. I think the two main candidates are Boltley and Kjartan, right? Yeah, absolutely. She treats I mean, both of them poorly. Well, I am going to offer. Uh, no, you know, yeah, it's got to be him. <laughs> I mean, you could make a you could make a tendentious argument that she treats Thorkell pretty badly at various points, no. including you know the showdown at their wedding reception. Uh, but oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you're right. It's not like I guess. I mean, that, that's the only example though that we'd have. But yeah, the I mean, other she's, she's very high handed in her dealings with him. But I don't think she treats him badly, or at least I would say. I don't think she treats him badly according to her opinion of what treating somebody badly would be. Yeah, I agree. Which makes Kjartan the the most likely candidate and why mm-hmm. she can't say his name, right? And why it's controversial right. to mention it to to Boltley. But yeah. <laughs> At the same time, I, I'm really I'm really interested in the possibility of it being Boltley because mm-hmm. who does she treat worse than, right. than Boltley? Like right, now she wrecks his life. <laughs> she doesn't want to be married to him. She yeah. she spends her all of her time nagging him and cajoling him and shaming him. Well, no, I mean nagging is strong. I mean she's she's you know really? this is she. I think she behaves like a person whose honor is at stake in the saga. I don't think um, her honor's at stake in that moment. I, I think you know browbeats might be fine. Okay, uh, browbeats. Nagging I, I to me suggests a, peri- a, a position of well, no, it just is just a position of inferior power. Yeah, I don't think Gudrun acts inferior in power to any of her husbands, especially not to Butley. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, so, but I, but I think she, you know, it ends up killing Butley in the end. I mean, this this treatment. Yeah, um, absolutely. At the same time, there's a good argument for Kjartan. I'm sure you 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 could handle the Kjartan side of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I certainly can. I mean, the, the, you know, the idea, uh, as you said, that she can't name the one she loves best to yeah. the son of his rival, that makes a lot of sense right away. It also, I would also suggest, and this is a, not an angle that I see discussed a lot, but the fact that Butley is pressing her on this suggests that he already suspects what the answer is. Yeah. 
right? That, that, you know, in her old age, he presses her to admit that this all came about because of thwarted love, mm-hmm. right? That all the things that happened and all the bloodshed was because of uh, Gudrun choosing a path of dignity, honor, and spite rather than the path of love. Yeah. Yeah, which brings the the saga to as as far or her story anyway, but the saga as well to a, a kind of a beautiful romantic conclusion. We finally get confirmation <laughs> that she always loved Kjartan, always right, and, and never forgot that. And that's why I'm suspicious of this is the answer. Yeah, I really, you know, it's my immediate reaction as a reader is what's well, got to be Kjartan. Yeah, uh, but I feel like there's there are some some assumptions going into that. Um, partly to do with, you know, a sentimental streak in Gudrun that I just don't think we have a lot of textual evidence <laughs> right, yeah. for. <laughs> I, I agree. Um, it it would be, I think it it is the romantic reading of this text that she's talking about, Kjartan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it requires that we ignore a lot of what we've learned about Gudrun to that point in the saga. Yeah, but I think that's okay. Because, and I'm going to make this argument in our summon section, I don't think this is really Gudrun anymore. Mm. Interesting. Um, for narrative purposes. I don't, not because I think of anything like transformational happening in her life. I think because I yeah, think just the, the text itself From a literary perspective, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I would also say from a literary perspective, what we have in, the, in Gudrun's story um, and, and the Kjartan thing... Um, there's a lot of parallels throughout this whole saga with uh, the saga of the Volsungs. Yeah, and we, well, absolutely, she's named after Gudrun in the saga mm-hmm. of the Volsungs. Um, mm-hmm. Brunhild's story and Gudrun's story in that narrative are interesting, and there's also a love triangle, and there's also mm-hmm. two women who marry the wrong guy, you know, right? And there, there's right. a betrayal, and there is frustration and sadness that leads to b- death for mm-hmm. for Sigurd. Brunhild dies knowing that she always loved Sigurd the best. Right. And this is, to me, this is echoing that. Right. But but obviously the entire point of presenting it this way is to introduce some ambiguity. Yes. Absolutely. Right? I mean, it's it's a much less interesting ending if Gudrun's last words are, I liked Kjartan better than any of my husbands. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Although it can be dramatic as we've seen with, with Brunhild, but... But what we get instead is a sort of open-ended conclusion, right? Uh, Beowulf mm-hmm. does something similar with the poem's eulogy after Beowulf's funeral, turning on that word uh, lofjarost, uh, most eager for fame. What what does that mm-hmm. mean, most eager for fame? How do we interpret that? Right. Uh, yeah, so ending a long story with an indeterminate epilogue, right? Asking the reader to make a decision that forces a reconsideration of the entire narrative arc. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great flourish if you can pull it off. Yeah. Okay, well, we're done. We're here. We did it. Well. Uh-huh. Summons to the thing. Gudrun daughter. Well, it, it, I mean, it's about time, but. Yeah. But, John, I think it's it's worth acknowledging, like, I, I'm sitting here thinking, like, well, we just, this momentous occasion, we've just finished our journey through Laxdale Saga, and I can't help but feel like this episode it it lacks a certain kind of uh, narrative cohesion 
if you will. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know we, what you mean. We talked it, through the entire thing. We did. But I, as I'm thinking back on our talking, I'm thinking like as a listener, how do you make sense of yeah. all that you just heard? Uh, there right. were some digressions in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what was the narrative that I was really following? I mean, we had the narrative was, thank God it's over. Yeah, we had we followed Thorkettle around and heard about prophecies of him dying for mm-hmm. a while. Um, we heard some genealogical information, mm-hmm. and then we had that nice bit about Guthrun uh, at mm-hmm. the end. Oh, and Snorri died, you know. Right. But it, there's really nothing that 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 holds the end of the yeah. saga together, other than this forward, a very kind of like a um, intentional forward momentum, a very rapid forward mm-hmm. momentum that's pulling you towards a new Iceland, uh, a very Christian right. Iceland. Um, mm-hmm. An Iceland that's that's different and and looking towards the thirteenth, late twelfth, early thirteenth century. Um, right, that's what the end of the saga is. Don't blame yeah, well, us. And as you said before we started recording, that you know the the main point is to shoehorn in all the genealogical information at the end of the saga. Yeah, yeah, which is in a lot of sagas, but does feel even more stitched on in this saga than in most. I think. Yeah, I just feel like we we were missing something. In the end, like a, a good story, <laughs> you know, like Boltley Boltlison is a cool guy who gets up to some cool adventures. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, we have a Thouter that we're going to do uh, right. very soon. Um, I was going to say that's that's usually appended to this saga, possibly exactly. because, you know, compilers, uh, uh, copyists looked at the saga and felt like the ending was a bit off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and needed um, something more there. Yeah, but again, you know, Arabica Saga ends the same way. It just, like, yes. rushes towards the, the descendants. It's not unusual that that would happen. Um, but it does kind of wander around quite a bit with the uh, Thorkettle stuff, and then mm-hmm. and then it kind of puts Gudrun on pause, on hold for a long time. You know what it kind of reminded me of is, uh, and this is an uh, uh, interesting parallel, is uh, the end of Greta's Saga. Oh, interesting. Where we get, you know, an entire coda about Thorsten Dromund uh, traveling across the continent to avenge his brother. Yeah, but that made uh, more sense to me because that was at least, that just felt like a thouter that was tacked on to yeah. the end. It's a, yeah. That has a narrative arc to it. I don't know Kinda, that anything... An internal narrative arc. But if we just look at this as Thorkettle's story, then there's a narrative arc here. It's just that it's... Yeah, yeah, that's fair. It's not, it's not the one that we are expecting or care about because what we really want is a satisfying conclusion to Goodwin's story at this point. Well, it is, but I guess... I, so maybe I'm talking myself into making sense of it all, right? So... That is appropriate because our first meeting of Gudrun is the the four dreams, right? The the mm-hmm. four husbands, and so to wrap up Gudrun's story, we need to kill right, off to her, wrap up her last dream. husband. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then a- after that, it really is just about the genealogies and then Gudrun's final words, right? And Christianity and all that stuff. Yeah. So I don't know it. It just, uh, I, I, I'm kind of apologizing if this episode doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but hopefully you found something uh, fun or interesting along the way. We've done our best. We, we, we uh, do what we could. And for this last summons, we obviously, we had to talk about Gudrun. Yeah, we've been saving Even if her. the saga doesn't want to end with her, we have to. Yeah. Uh, it's, because I this mean, is her saga, if it's anybody's. Yeah, it's clearly her story, at least once she takes the stage about two-thirds of the way into the, into the text. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of prelude before we got to her uh, kind of like an ale saga in that way mm-hmm. but once yeah. Gudrun enters the story everything comes together um there are a lot of well-defined female characters in this saga and as any number of scholars have pointed out they serve ultimately as stage setters for Gudrun 
Yeah, Christensen spends a couple of paragraphs of his entry on Luxtella talking about three women who paved the way for Gudrun. Yeah. Al the Deep-Minded, whom Christensen compares to a benevolent queen, and that's a quote. Uh, Melkorka, who is an actual princess and who remains unbowed by her years of servitude. And Thorgert Ale's daughter, uh, Gudrun's rival, and a woman who is every bit as self-assured and implacable as her famous father. Mm -hmm. Uh, As Robert Kellogg says, the women in this saga are more complex and challenging than the men. Yeah. Which brings us to Gudrun herself, who Christensen calls the greatest of all the women portrayed in the sagas. It's a big claim. So, uh, yeah. Should we get to the summons? Let's uh, start this thing off. All right. So Andy and I drew lots and I'll be providing the case for Gudrun. Oh. And then Andy will try to make the case against her. For and against what, though? Just generally. Oh, okay. Don't overthink this. Yeah. I think we've been running this with the defense going first, so I'll start. Okay, go ahead. Okay, uh, this isn't going to be super long because we've essentially spent the last seven or eight months showing why Gudrun is a remarkable and successful saga figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a successful landowner, a social climber, a ruthless aristocrat. She has a highly developed sense of her personal honor and the honor of her household, and she will sacrifice anything. Her personal happiness, her marriage alliances, her property, anything in the service of that honor. Uh, think back to her instant decision to refuse Kjartan's half-hearted proposal when he wouldn't allow her to come with him to Norway. Even though she knows she is denying herself happiness, she doesn't hesitate to cut off their relationship. In a male saga figure, we would call that inflexible, but it's also the rules by which the game of honor is played, and we would recognize that. Uh, the remarkable thing about Gudrun that she stands out in a saga full of exceptional people and remarkable women, as we just said. Alv is a kind of settler generation Machiavelli, building a genealogical empire that dominates the saga and the island. Thorgerd takes a more gender-fluid role, accompanying her sons on vengeful killings and speaking in the language of violence, right, the language usually of men. Breach's Alf moves that one step further, dressing in man's garb and taking responsibility for her own offended honor by stabbing her unfaithful husband in his new bed. Incidentally, from a modern perspective, we recognize and admire these moments of resistance to heteromasculine hegemony, yes. But saga audiences are more likely to recognize how Gudrun does all that while maintaining her personal, admittedly sometimes idiosyncratic, ideas about separating herself from the games boys play. At the same time, she's capable of being sarcastic or mocking about her relationship to those games. Remember when her husband, Butley, returned from killing Kjartan at her urging? Gudrun's response was the wry comparison of her own morning work spent spinning ells of yarn while Butley was slaying Kjartan. That's often read as self-mocking, right? A kind of lament that she couldn't do the deed herself. Or as a moment that emphasizes Gudrun's disenfranchisement from modes of power. Helga Kress, for example, argues that that scene juxtaposes the sexual division of labor to draw attention to and to criticize the disparity between men's and women's roles. I I read it differently. If we think mythologically, Gudrun's comment might well be taken as a boast made through comparison to the Norns. We, We haven't talked about the Norns much on the podcast. They're the Fates, the equivalent of the Fates in Greco Roman myth. The Norns are three women who sit at the base of Yggdrasil weaving the tapestry of life. Gudrun's point is that she has woven while Butley has acted, 
and between them they have cut short the tapestry of Kjartan's life. If we extend that idea over the second half of this saga, we find that Gudrun's masterful weaving of plots and lives puts her in the echelons of the great plot weavers of other sagas. Snorri Gothi, Ofix Githeson, Njal Thorgerson, and so on. Men like Gudmund the Powerful, or Snorri Gothi, or Thord Yeller are admired for their success and their political skill, despite their flaws as people. Gudrun, I think, needs to be judged by that standard. She's a public figure, a political figure, and so her behavior is that of an honor-obsessed, strong-willed politician with deep pockets and a towering self-regard. In other words, she's a lot like her cousin Snorri Gothi. Carol Clover argues that there's really only one important gender in the sagas, a kind of hegemonic masculinity that was associated with social dominance, generosity, success against one's enemies, physical ability, beauty, and so on. Although the culture and the literature both stack the deck in favor of male success, Clover indicates that a few women also achieve this status of success gender. And by that metric, we have to include Gudrun among the saga's winners. By any metric, I think Gudrun dominates this saga's later chapters as thoroughly as Snorri does in Erbidja, and that's a pretty high praise. I might not go to Christensen's level of calling her the greatest woman of the sagas when you have Al the Deep-Minded and Thorgil Eil's daughter right here in this same saga to compare her to, but she's certainly in the top tier for both women and successful oligarchs of Saga Age Iceland. The final ingredient for a successful saga figure is an impressive lineage into the 13th century. Gudrun's great-grandsons include prominent bishops, abbots, and Ari the Learned, so job done there. Finally, I want to address the strange and incongruous turn toward performative Christianity in Gudrun's final years. Even a century ago, Thorstein Veblen argued that uh, Gudrun, even more so than Kjartan or Butli, suffers from the author's desire to slap a coat of Christian moralizing paint on top of this saga, so that the complex, self-serving, prideful, and crafty Gudrun is hampered by a narrative that, and this is a quote, dutifully crowns her with the distinction of having been the first nun in Anchorite in Iceland and having meritoriously carried penance and abnegation to the outer limit of endurance. I kind of agree. I think we understand Gudrun best if we ignore the strange and uncharacteristic ending of this saga. Gudrun makes the most sense when we saw see her the way we saw her in the two or three episodes before this one, when she was manipulating her sons and her would-be suitor Thorgils into avenging Butley, when she was plotting with Snorri Gothi, helping her friends and sons to generous patronage, and throwing herself a massive wedding and then winning a showdown with her new husband during the reception. No matter what metric you use, though, the text is clear that Gudrun is a remarkable and remarkably effective saga figure. Andy? Yeah. That's a lot of fancy words there. <laughs> a lot of, That's my job. A lot of research. Like, okay, people, before we started here, John tells me, oh, I just threw something together. I, just a simple country scholar. I, I've got. I don't really have anything. Um, and then you heard what he just did. Okay, I didn't realize we were writing research papers on <laughs> on Gudrun for this, and I did not write a research paper. See, on, this is this is classic Andy on Gudrun. setting up lowered expectations for yourself. 
Yeah, well, it's a classic John who's going to uh, weave a, a clever tale using fine words and quotes from scholars. Um, but what he's going to do is ignore the reality of the situation. Okay, so. No, boy. I'll start with this, okay? Because I think I think my approach, it doesn't disagree with your conclusions, mm-hmm. broadly speaking. So you're talking about four four Guthrin. I think you're talking about four Guthrin um, as a literary character. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. and for many, you're you're absolutely right. Guthrin also. I don't want to blow it for you, Andy, but she is one. I, I completely agree. Uh, and and for many, Guthrin Oswald's daughter is not only the protagonist but the central hero of Laxdala Saga. Look up uh, articles on this and books, studies, and look mm-hmm. up Guthrin's name, and you'll find she is the central hero of Laxdala Saga. Right, and that's fair. That's really fair to some some degree. The author's clearly invested in women's stories, as you just outlined for us so nicely, and I think that you did a great job on that. Um, And he's also interested in their unique perspective on the history of Iceland and the steady decline of the Commonwealth. Um, That's one of the things that William Penchak is Mm. is really looking at is is Guthrin as an example of, uh, in fact, her whole story kind of shows the history of Iceland in some interesting ways. Right. Um, I think it's easy, though, to blend the author's interest in women of the saga with a rather broad approval for the various actions of Guthrun. I think she gains our sympathy, right, from the very first moment we're introduced to her as a 15-year-old girl troubled by disturbing dreams and forced Mm -hmm. into a marriage with a man she doesn't care for, right? Time and again, she is put into compromising positions that force her to make difficult decisions. And I think if we go back through our study of the sagas, the most important lessons that the sagas have to offer a general audience come from explorations of how one handles themselves in those difficult moments, right? So while I agree that, yes, Gudrun leads an unfortunate life in many, many ways, and I agree that she is a powerful representative of the female experience in medieval Iceland and introduces wonderful questions about that, I'm not so sure that we're meant to view her actions with approval. Sympathy? Sure. Moral approval? I don't think so. (laughs) What we see in Gudrun is a woman who consistently chooses the path that suits her best regardless of the cost to others. Now, one could argue that this makes her a more dynamic character, a more masculine character, or however you'd want to put it. And it does. One could also argue that male characters in the sagas that we've read do similar things, acting to preserve their honor, to protect their self-interest above all else. And sure, that, that is a decent approach. But I think what it does is neglect the underhanded, selfish, manipulative, dare I say, criminal behaviors of Guthrun. So let's let's list out her greatest hits, shall we? First, she begins flirting with Thor behind her husband Thorvald's back. The two of them then hatch a plot to free Guthrun from her marriage to Thorvald. In the end, Guthrun divorces Thorvald on the grounds that he wears women's clothing and is not manly. A grave insult and a deep humiliation to Thorvald. Publicly. Now, divorces, John, they happen all the time in the sagas for a variety of reasons. And it's relatively easy in pagan Iceland for a couple to dissolve their marriage, whether mutually or as individuals. 
And it would have been especially easy for Guthrun to divorce Thorvald after he slapped her in the face at the start of chapter 32 when she's asking for so much material goods from him. Because in the Graugas, and the Graugas preserve something of the uh, pagan laws as well, physical abuse of either partner was widely recognized, both in pagan and early Christian Iceland, as a legitimate cause for divorce. But Gudrun reveals her cruel and vindictive side by taking steps to not only divorce Thorvald, but also to humiliate and emasculate him, ruining his reputation. It is an unnecessary twist of the knife, in my opinion. And it's only the beginning of Gudrun's cruelty. Think about her treatment of Boltli, of Kjartan, and even of Hrepna. They all share similarities to her handling of Thorvald, because in each case... I agree, she is put in an unfortunate situation or she finds herself in an unfortunate situation and it's usually due to no fault of her own. It is fate. It is circumstance. But in each case, her petty vindictive nature, that leads to further chaos and destruction. You kept mentioning honor. I have to ask, is Gudrun protecting her honor when she goads her brothers into stealing Kjartan's sword? Is Gudrun protecting her honor by stealing the headdress from Hrepna? Is she protecting her honor when she incites Boltli to kill his foster brother Kjartan, setting off a feud that will claim the lives of so many? In a place that was relatively peaceful, had she not pushed the way that she did? So no, I don't, I don't think so. She's giving in to her base and immoral nature. The sagas are full of men like Gudrun. And almost all of them, but especially those who steal and provoke violence for selfish reasons, they generally are viewed in a negative light. And so the same should be true for Gudrun. Is Gudrun an imposing and impressive force in this saga? Yes, without a doubt. Can we sympathize with her? Yes, of course. Can we learn from her story and lament the plight of women in her position? Absolutely. Can we applaud her actions and deem them admirable? according to the rules of saga morality? To me, that's a more troubling question. I don't think we're supposed to. Instead, she is the author of her own tragedy. Our task here is not to judge Gudrun's value as a feminist symbol, because that part is easy. She's a stunning example, as I've said, and as you've outlined. Our task is to judge, or at least I took our task, here today to be to judge the quality of her character and the morality of her actions. And when we look at it that way, I think we need to shift away from conversations about how we can understand her motivations, about how we feel about her, about how impressive she is as a female character in the sagas. And instead, we need to evaluate her choices, her actions, and their effects. And in most every case, Gudrun's cruelty and her vindictiveness overwhelm her faculties of reason and they lead to destructive outcomes both for her and those she loves and holds dear. I'm I'm sorry, everyone, but Gudrun is not a hero in this saga. If anyone is a hero, it's Snorri Gothi for effectively navigating the conflict and resolving it with minimal bloodshed. Gudrun is a fascinating character. But a hero, no. And it, it takes Christianity to soothe her, to calm her, and to make her peaceful. And that is the story of Iceland. It is the taming of the wild Iceland through Christianity, right? And that is Gudrun's story. So that's my take on her. Um, I'm sure you didn't like it, John, but uh, 
A couple of things. Yeah. Uh, no, no, because now now we've established our, like, we did our job. Yeah. And now we can actually talk about it. Yes. Uh, first of all, I'm going to isolate the soundbite of you saying, if anyone's a hero here, it's Snorri Gothi. <laughs> uh, and I'll be playing that from now on every time you try to smear his name with mud. I'd like to see you try uh, to isolate that. <laughs> I've seen you work Hey, somebody computer. isolate that for me. <laughs> somebody who knows how these things work. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean... To me, the argument, um, and I, I agree with much of what you said, but um, the argument that uh, Christianity at the end is what sort of produces a, a more evolved Gudrun, uh, and that that's kind of a parallel for Iceland, to me, that's an argument in favor of Gudrun as a heroic figure. I mean, we, we've talked before about how uh, Gretter is considered one of the great heroes of saga literature. He's also a deeply problematic human being. I don't know that Greta uh, is celebrated as one of the heroes of Icelandic literature. Oh, my literature. goodness. What is the, who's the poet who writes, Greta, you are my Iceland? Yes, that's an insult. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's an insult to Iceland. Uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, that complicated figures and figures who uh, produce their own tragedy right, through their actions. Yes. Uh, that's, I mean, that's the classical definition of a tragic hero. Right? Oh, that's the, yeah. No, again... Uh, I, so that's why that's that's why I wrote my my take on Gudrun the way that I mm-hmm. did, because I think when we're doing a summons and evaluating the quality of the character, we have two different kinds of characters we're talking about there, right? We have the literary character who represents mm-hmm. all kinds of interesting things from a literary perspective, from a historical mm-hmm. perspective, from a gender yeah. studies perspective, all those things. And like I said, she's she's wonderful for that. She's perfect for that. If I'm evaluating her according to the the codes of morality within the sagas themselves, mm-hmm. as the sagas establish them, I find her deeply troubling. Is she within, impressive within sort of the saga version of history? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if if we're in the saga version of history, are we impressed by her? Like I said, yeah, we are. Uh, do we like her? Do we find wrong in what she's done? Are we meant to be satisfied with the way she's handled herself? Man, I don't, I don't think so. I think it's it's tragedy. I yeah, I think I think we agree here. I mean, you know, my argument for her is largely a literary argument. Yeah, um, you know, and um, I think you can make the same case though for a lot of saga protagonists. I agree. You know, if yeah. we if we really, you know, if we let's take uh, Neil Thorgerson for a second, right? If we start really parsing apart what he does in his saga, we started to do that a little bit as we were going. Right, through he's that, a very right? destructive person. Like yes. he he's a, he's deceitful. He's he lies a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, he is extremely destructive while piously arguing for the need for lawfulness. That's right. Uh, he does more than anybody else to undermine confidence in the law. That's right. Yes. Through the law, the uh, land will rise, but only as I'm manipulating it for my own good. Exactly. You know? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Makes that argument right after he's just manipulated the system into gridlock. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, you know, there's another guy who, you know, if we look at him as a literary figure, he's a beautifully created figure. Um, who literally creates his own nemesis mm-hmm. right? in a in a way that you almost never see in literature, like an actual nemesis yeah. right? in in Moore's Valgrinson. Uh But as a an historical figure, or as a you know, saga history figure, uh, yeah, a deeply problematic person who does a great deal to undermine the system yeah. that he supposedly champions. Yeah. So I think uh, I think that's the nice thing about uh, about this character. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and about sagas in general. Gudrun is constantly put into, as a good saga character would be, constantly put into impossible situations, right? And mm-hmm. how you choose to manage that impossible situation tells us a lot about, I think, how we're meant to read you as a character. So, right. yes, dynamic, but there's no reason that she needs to arrange the death of Kjartan. She, there's, and the reason, I guess the, the reason she had to do it was because Kjartan shamed them, but Kjartan shamed them because mm-hmm. she pushed and stole his sword and stole the headdress and put him I mean, in an she impossible didn't force situation. Him, she didn't force him to spend a year possibly sleeping with the king's sister. Look, uh, man, what happens in Norway stays in Norway <laughs> and Boltley but broke I, that. But I, but I, I do think that, you know, what we've established here is that Gudrun really is one of the figures who most clearly establishes the distinctions between the artistic creation that is the sagas and the purported historical documents that yeah. are the sagas. Yeah, yeah, very uh, much. Yeah, and so it's it's she's a very interesting figure in that way. And and what's really nice to see in this saga, because we spend so much time with the female characters, and Gudrun especially, is we do see the feelings of a woman being honored. Uh, we do see uh, an independent streak in a woman coming out and asserting her authority over the men. And not just once, it, by the way. Yeah. You know, with several of the women in the story. Yeah. She is a force to be reckoned with. And for mm-hmm. that, I think we, we, especially in contrast to so many other characters, we start to respect her for what she's able to accomplish. But uh, again, if I'm a Christian audience in the 13th century, 14th century reading this, uh, my feelings about her have to be complicated. And I think if you're reading these sagas correctly in the, the modern era and looking for examples of how to behave, um, I don't know that she's a great a great are model. We? Is that really what we read sagas for? Is for uh, sort of how to? Um, not what we read sagas for, I but I think <laughs> when you read literature, what are you reading literature for? You're reading literature for artistic enjoyment, uh, aesthetics, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. You're reading literature, especially um, historical literature, for a sense of another time, a bit of escapism, that kind of thing. But you, re- you really want to, uh, this this late in the podcast, you really want to start a conversation about the purposes of reading literature? Well, I think you, you know where I'm headed, but like, <laughs> I mean, it's got to be edifying in some way, right? Uh-huh. It's got to s- share a message about society, about human nature, uh, uh, about life in general and it's got to be absorbed by the the reader and interpreted by the reader and if the author's doing their the their job correctly the ideally that message can be timeless and i think the sagas do that very well often mm-hmm. i feel like we're wandering away from our discussion of gudrun though i um, do i think we're wandering towards the end of this episode how do you feel about that i think that's possibly that's quite possible yes yeah so lots of stuff for you guys to think about um and, you know, there's so much to think about Gudrun, so much to say about Gudrun that uh, uh, we've had several really good conversations about her on the mm-hmm. Discord page, um, some lengthy ones yes, uh, that have been really uh, fascinating. Right. And I mean, on here, we obviously haven't covered everything, no. but we'd need a full episode to go back over all that. Yeah. Uh, and we're all about the future here at Saga Thing, Andy. No, we're not. We're... <laughs> No, we're we're literally about the past. We are. Yes, I realize that. The point about, is that we're moving on. We're about future episodes. That's what we're about. There you go. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be back soon with the Judgments episode and a saga short on the Thauter that is sometimes appended to this saga, very often appended to it. It is a short story about another adventure of the father-avenging Varangian guard starting snappy dresser, Boltley the Elegant Boltlison. 
Excellent. Something to look forward to. Uh, but while we're working on the Judgments episode, you should let us know. What do you think? Uh, what moment of bloodshed do you think needs a nomination? Who's got the best nickname? Who should we be considering as Thingman? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a handful of good candidates here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This uh, isn't just a bit. It's a long yeah. saga, and we we actually need some help remembering everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, so how do they let us know what they think? Well, as always, the best way to reach out to us is the unofficial official Saga Thing Discord, where it's so easy to communicate that even John occasionally, in fact, sometimes more than occasionally does it. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, on the Discord page, uh, we've been talking about everything from C.S. Lewis to Guthrin uh, to genealogies and all other kinds of stuff. But you can also get to us via email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, where we are Saga Thing Podcast, or you can find us on the trash fire formerly known as Twitter, where we are Saga Thing Pod. <laughs> uh, last and quite possibly least, you can check our WordPress blog, which is sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com and leave a comment there. And if none of that works, just uh, yeah, just pray in random spots around your yard and property until you upset a ghost. And then ask them to deliver a message to us in exchange for you not bothering them anymore. It just might work. Get those tears pumping, people. All right. <laughs> We're only holy tears, though. Don't you be right. shedding right. those. I know you listeners with your pagan only tears. Only the very best tears. Yes. You keep the best tears for these ghosts if you want your message delivered. All right. Uh, we will be back soon. Until then, thanks for listening. This has been a lengthy journey through Lax Saga. We're almost done. We appreciate y'all. I'm excited about what comes next. Bye for now. Yeah, no, L-E-D-E, it refers to typesetting. Hmm. I did not know that. I learned something tonight, and that's that's go. a victory. Uh, I learned I that from. in high school because I'm probably the last person in America who had to like, physically typeset his school newspaper. That's great. That's great. You're a real <laughs> Peter Zanger. All right. I'm, I'm a real old fart is what I <laughs> Geller himself has a yep. pretty remarkable career. Um, he earns the nickname Old Geller, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. And sadly, at the end of his life, he has to be he he, he gets bit by uh, a rabid uh, is I think it's a bear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he has to be put down in the shed. Um, it's a really sad kind of a tearjerker ending to his thouter. Um, but uh, you should check that out. It's the uh, saga of old Geller. Uh, and it's also uh, that, by the way, explains the end of the story of Skofna. <laughs> That's right. Uh, right. Because when Geller is buried, he's buried overseas. Hold on. And Skolfnung is buried with him. Why are you... What are you doing? What? You just brought it up. No, I didn't. I was making an old yeller joke. Oh, you bet. And you're just, you're just nodding like, yep, that's right. He was... Well, I was I he, was thinking... I was just trying to do get this shoehorn this thing in. I wasn't that's hilarious. I, I literally you, said he got rabies. You were doing an old yeller joke? I said he got rabies and he had to be put down by the shed. That's terrible. <laughs> That's and, the and, worst joke I've ever. And you heard. nodded, and then you were like, "Yeah, in fact." <laughs> no, I, I wasn't listening to what you were saying. 
idiot. You're supposed to pay attention. I don't know if you can see things. it. I was, I, was, I was over here trying to like look up the thing at the end about how uh, Skofnug is buried with him. Oh, okay. Well, all right. Well, I'm going to cut all that because you made an ass of both of us.